hit me. From Studio P, Sausalito, home of the hit, it's time for... Succotash. The number one comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast commentator, Mark Hershon. Yes, this is Mark Hershon, and this is episode 26, Epi 26 of Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast. It's going to be kind of a special episode just because I'm only going to play mostly a interview I recently did just this week with comedian Joe Klosik in San Francisco. Known him for a long time and uh, he's got a show that plays monthly in San Francisco, previously Secret Information, PSI. And uh, so I want to get this interview on. I will be in the studio shortly with engineer Joe, uh, Joe, Joe, Polino, that is, of course, and we will do a full-blown episode with lots of clips. Um, so uh, I'll take a little break in between, uh, maybe play a Henderson spot, maybe play a song by Karen Kilgariff. You know what? I will do that. I'll do both those things, and we'll have a burst of durst at the very end. But other than that, it's, uh, it's not a bunch of clips this time, so I hope you're not disappointed. It's a great interview with my friend, comedian Joe Klosik. He's going to be headlining here tomorrow night. And you've also seen him on Comedy Central. Please make it loud for Joe Klosek. Come on! Thank you. I'm, I'm originally from Illinois. That's why I look like this. Still want to woo about it? No. That's, that's yeah, because it's, it's not like I chose this. You know, I didn't go to the barber one day and say, Hey, could you make me look like a Nazi from The Sound of Music? And he nailed it. He nailed it. He got it. Yeah. Lisa, you have a telegram. Ha 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 ha. I've lived here for 20 years. That means when I go back to Illinois, I am the ambassador of San Francisco. Which means everybody wants to ask me gay questions. It's always, what do you think about gay marriage? What do I think of gay marriage? I think I'm a straight, white, middle-aged guy who can't make it work in his life. Surely the gays won't mind me speaking for them. I don't care who gets married. Why are they fighting for that, though? They have everything I want right now. <laughs> My girlfriend all the time, when we get married, I would love to be able to say, oh, it's against the law. <laughs> Where's my parade? You know what I mean? I took a gig recently knowing that it was going to be awful, but I knew it was going to be so awful I would come away with a story, and this is exactly what happened. It started out like this. The booker sent me an email, and all in capital is always a good sign. It said this at the top. It said, please be advised, this venue prominently displays the Confederate flag. Yeah, it's not indicative of their philosophy. I've booked many diverse shows there. Have fun. <laughs> All right, sure, let's find out how bad this is going to be. <laughs> I hadn't even gone in the place yet. I'm standing outside, I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh my God, did I really agree to this? And this guy walks up to me, we've never met. We've never exchanged a word, but he says this, I can always tell when black people are around. So can I, they're black. What the hell is wrong with you? 
Are you a psychic racist? What are you telling me? <laughs> you have to cut eye holes out? What, is, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I walk in the place, and sure enough, there's a Confederate flag. But not just that. There's the biggest American flag I've ever seen in my life. Then the Confederate flag. On either side of that, there's those naked women mud flap silhouettes. Yeah, very classy. But then hanging at the end of the Confederate flag, disco ball. What is this mixed message that you're telling us here, you know? Like, America, if you're different, we don't like you. Women are objects. Gays are okay. They hated me so much, they're chanting, we're number one, we're number one. And I'm like, really? Because that flag is number two. You lost. That's what that means. And after the show, I'm dying of curiosity. I asked this cocktail waitress, I'm like, don't you think that in this day and age, that flag is, I don't know, really offensive to African Americans? Without even thinking, she just goes, well, they never come in here. There's a Confederate flag hanging from the ceiling. And after that, I'm like, I just, I gotta get out of here. They paid me American money. And I was afraid I was going, is my wall big enough for this? I'm trying to get to my car, and this drunk guy gets in front of me, and he's that kind of drunk I call a tether drunk, you know? He's like, like this, and he looks like he's gonna fall, but he never quite does. And there's a lot of this. And he gets in front of me and just goes, I don't like what you said. Fire flat. Like, uh, Alright. And then he starts to throw a punch. And he's so slow that I have time to think in my head, wow, this guy's gonna punch me. <laughs> but the punch is so slow that all I had to do to get out of the way of it was just go. <laughs> And he pulls his fist back and I just straighten back up. And here's why I continue to take horrible gigs, because this guy gave me this moment. He stands there and just goes, all right, you're pretty fast, Matrix. I am uh, at, um, in the green room at the punchline in San, the historic punchline in San historic. Francisco with uh, Joe Klosik. Hello, Joe. Welcome to Succotash. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, Joe and I have known each other for, uh, God, a very long time, actually, if you think about it. I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> not the not knowing you part, just the length of time. Uh, and I even, this this green room, I'm, I've known much longer than you, actually. You probably have. You probably, uh, some of the photos on uh, here. I'm, I was probably standing on the periphery of the photos of the comics you see back here. Um, I, I actually predate most of these photographs. Wow. Because uh, I used to book this club. Uh, starting in 1981. Holy Christ. Yeah. How many years did you book it? Well, I was working with the Foxes, so um, during part of that time, I went to Sar to Seattle and ran the Comedy Underground. Uh, so I was up there as the general manager for two and a half years, and then I came back here. So wow. I, I was helping them book starting in 81, then I went up to Seattle in 82, and then I came back and uh, actually taught Jeff Wills how to book a comedy club. Wow. Uh, before he uh, left the Foxes and became the uh, emperor. emperor that he is of now. comedy on the West Coast. But we're here to talk about you. Let's Joe talk Klosik. about me. Um, just to, uh, we'll get into a little bit of our history, but just so listeners kind of know uh, that we do have a history. Um, you, I was, 
I was uh, sounds ominous. It does. I know. I was. I started running, or or not running, but directing the uh, the house improv group at Cobb's. And I'm going to say 1999. I think that's right. That's right. It was, yeah, it had to be 98, 99. <laughs> and we had uh, several people in the cast. And we didn't have a name for uh, about the first six months. We kept using a different name every week. And then finally settled on the Riffingtons. Riffingtons. Uh, I had employed one of my uh, fail-safe ways to get into a comedy club uh, as an improv group. And that is to have the owner... Or someone associated with the owner as a member of the improv group. Because then how can you miss? <laughs> well, <laughs> there's, there's always some pitfalls involved. We missed quite a few nights. <laughs> so Tom Sawyer graciously uh, uh, accepted my invitation to become part of the Riffingtons. Uh, it was part of the, the onus of getting to perform there. Yeah. Uh, but you, poor Joe Klosik, uh I got jumped in. You I didn't were, have a choice. I know. You were, you he were, told me. You were doing stand-up. And at that point, how long had you been doing stand-up? I've been doing it for, God, it has to have been like 10 years at that point. You know, and I'd finally cracked the, uh, the Tom Sawyer nut. I'd gotten <laughs> into Cobbs. And uh, he, he went from not knowing me to hating me to <laughs> including me in everything and this was one of those instances where i'm like ah oh, i don't really want to do this tom is like no you're going to you're going to be great come on it'll be fun like i don't want to it's more stage time i really don't want to i'm telling you okay and you were in the group all of a sudden group. and now had you had any improv experience Zero. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely no. But I have to say, you were quite the trooper. Thank you. Uh, and it didn't take you long to really kind of get up to speed. And you never really had any official training. You were really just kind of picking it up as you went. And I think we would give you tips and hints as best we could as we were going. But you really were flying by the it seat was, of your pants. Uh, totally. It was fun. It was it was fun until the night Tom broke my rib. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and does that rib still hurt? A little bit when yeah. it rains or, <laughs> or I see somebody get something on TV that I wanted. Yeah, I slipped on the edge of the stage one night and just tore the crap out of the ligaments of my knee. Oh, man. And that still will Seriously? come back. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was just... So I we all walked away with wounds. Oh, yeah, there was injuries, some of them psychological, all of us all psychological, psychological. Uh, yeah. some physical. Um, but uh, Cole Stratton Cole. was in that group. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. is, uh, you know, one of the producers of the SF Sketchfest. I've had him on here as a guest before. Um, Tom Sawyer and uh, several other people who I won't identify at the moment because uh, <laughs> it's not my business to use up your time doing that. <laughs> well, there are some great stories. There are. There the, are. The, the rib story, though, that was classic Tom. <laughs> yeah, what had he actually done to you to uh, affect that? Do you remember Tony Diomko? I do. Tony's down in L.A. He's doing, he's doing well. Uh, he got conned into doing it with us one night. That's right. I remember. It was more than one night. He occasionally would get pressed into yes. getting up there. Yes. Yeah. And like a lot of comics, uh, he just hugged the back wall <laughs> out of tear. But also like, well, this is my chance to show Tom I can do something. Because that, that was every comic's like, oh, well, I get stage time on stage with, with the guy who books the club. Maybe that will help yeah, me. But right. then they would get up there and then they were terrified, right? Yes. So we're doing the typical freeze tag right. thing. And I don't remember what the circumstances were, but somebody, Tom yells freeze, steps in, taps the person out, uh, and immediately changes the scene to, we're pro wrestlers. <laughs> so there's a lot of, you know, uh, just 
aggression and, and violence, chest thumping and stuff like that. And then Tom picks me up. He's a pretty strong guy. Yes, and he, you're 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 very slight at the time. I was very slight at the time, uh, which made it all the easier. So he picks me up and he goes down on one knee, and you know it's it's supposed to be fake. Yes, but he does the drop. I, yes, and it's it, all coming back in a sick rush. Right, my now. ribs actually hit his knee, oh. and I roll off of it, and now I'm on the stage literally writhing in pain oh. and making noise, Diamco finally steps forward and he's just like, I think he's really hurt, but Tom, completely locked into the improv moment, goes, somebody said freeze, stop moving. And he was mad that I'm in pain. I'm like, no, I think I'm really hurt. And Tom's like, freeze. Oh, my God. That was that was a good night. Yes. I got a lot of stage time after that because I think he was afraid I was going to sue or something. <laughs> but literally, like, right after that, like, oh, I got all these opening weeks. It's awesome. Uh, so let's see. How can we best uh, kind of uh, gear the audience up to kind of learn learn who you are in a nutshell? You So you've been doing comedy. What, what was the first year you, that you did stand-up? Man, I was at the Holy City Zoo the last year wow. that okay. they were there, which is is, uh, is sort of a weird claim to fame because I, I wasn't really there. You know, I mean, I would show up and yeah. I would get on the open mic. Uh, I had no idea. So that was like 90... God, what was that? That had, No, that had to be... If the Rippingtons were 99... Right, this yeah. had to be like '94. Because when did the zoo close? Uh, that was it. Was on its last. Had to be its last gasps about then. I mean, the Durst had taken it over, yeah. and then somebody else had had John Cantu gotten back to take. I can't remember. I don't who know. Yeah, it's, was, it's but. muddy. But I I got into stand up like '93, '94, um, and I that's 20 years now that I've been doing. Um, so, but you're not originally from San Francisco. Not originally a Midwestern guy outside of Chicago, but I, I didn't do any comedy until I got here um, and completely fell into it by accident, literally. Uh, how so? I was working in Walnut Creek at a restaurant, and I was a, a cook, and I was living with a girlfriend, and she cheated on me, and I was utterly heartbroken. I mean, completely, True. you know, it's like the first major breakup of my life. I'm like 22 and uh, devastated. And I would go in to work and people would ask me, hey, how are you doing? And every time I would tell them, they would laugh. You know, like, I, it was just, yeah, I'm like, why are you laughing? You people are mean. And they would laugh harder. There was a, a waiter there by the name of Mike McAllister. And he was doing comedy and having a little bit of success in the city. And he's like, hey, you're, you're funny. You should come with me to an open mic sometime. Why don't we go to the Holy City Zoo? I didn't know anything about anything. That's a completely foreign language. Completely. I'm like, well, I don't have any material. I don't know what to talk about. It's like, just tell the audience about your girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) So I went on stage, and I talked about that, and they were laughing. And there was just that click in my head, that realization, oh, this this is a rush. This feels good. And it's weird that they are literally misinterpreting my pain as humor, but... That is all of comedy. And was that cathartic for you? It was. I mean, it was really cathartic. Because um, it, it was a high. It was like a, a, a real, genuine, like, wow, I'm I'm saying this, and they're laughing. I'm having control over an audience. And, you know, then I would I'd try to write, and then, you, you know, you get into that honing of things, and you're like, oh, okay, this, this is really cool. Yeah. So for like two, three years at the beginning... It was all like, well, 
what are the worst things that have happened to me? <laughs> How can I take that on stage and and make that funny to the audience? And it was, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Uh, and sort of, if you look at, at uh, what you're doing now with your uh, PSI, Previously Secret Information Show, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, but when you look at what you're doing with that, it sort of harkens back to those early days of sort of these painful stories. It does. I mean, it does in a weird way. It's, it's been a long roundabout route. I mean, the, the, the whole concept of PSI was basically, it, it literally happened in this green room. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, it literally did. I was working with um, uh, Greg Proops, mm-hmm. and anybody who knows Greg, who's hung out with him, will will tell you he's a monster storyteller. Oh, unbelievable. He, I was in an improv group with him uh, it, it, ten, 20 years before I was in an improv group with you. I just, I mean, just, uh, and he knows how to tell the story. Like, he, he takes his time. Uh, you know, he's, he's traveled, done shows everywhere. So we were working here one week, and he's telling me this incredible story about being in Yugoslavia, mm. you know, during during their troubles. <laughs> you know, they're doing a USAO tour, and, and, and it's just it's this amazing story. And at the end of it, I go, hey, why don't you tell this on stage? And like every comic ever, he goes, well, there's just not enough laugh lines, and some of it's kind of serious. And I just thought, oh, ghosts. Uh, I just thought... You know, there should be a show for that, though. Yeah. So years and years later, after I had amassed my collection of road stories, uh, I thought, you know, here's what I know about stand-up comedy. You're really allowed to be two things on stage, angry and funny. That's it. That's all the crowd will let you... That's interesting. Yeah. That's, I mean, and that's my opinion. Yeah. You know, there's there's some other pathos that I think comics try to sneak in, but really, that's about it. Angry and funny. Uh, storytelling, I get to be a complete human being. There's a full range of emotion, mm-hmm. and a lot of the funniest things I think in anybody's life, it's serious. You know, somebody finds out they have cancer, and you're like, oh my God, that's horrible. And then they start telling you what they're going through, and they're laughing. Yes. And it is it is incredibly cathartic, and it's, it's, it's a great story. So the idea was, well, let's do a show uh, primarily of comics, but let's let's give them uh, the leeway to really explore some of this. And you don't have to get a laugh every second. It's not about being funny. It's about telling a great story well. Um, and so far, yeah, we've we've gotten really good reviews, and we've, we've got a loyal audience, and we're we're doing okay, you know. But we can always do better. <laughs> That's great. Well, we're happy to talk about it here. And uh, I, I promised you almost a year ago <laughs> I was going to write up a review for uh, Huffington Post, and uh, damn it, I'm going to. I know you I'm are. Going yeah, to. We're busy. We're all we're, busy. We're I so get busy. It. We're so busy. But I have seen the show. And in fact, Greg Proops was on the show. Yes. I saw. He told his chicken delight story, <laughs> which is fantastic. Of growing up on the peninsula as a just out of high school stoner. It was, it was an awesome story. It was fantastic. Um, and these you put these on usually monthly, right? Yes. The PSI shows. And they, they don't happen in a comedy club. They're they're theatrical. Yeah. Uh, generally at the Stageworks yes. Theater. Um, you have one coming up in June. We have one coming up June 17th, Father's Day. And uh, I would strongly encourage anyone to go to our website, previouslysecretinformation.com. And we've really put together a stellar lineup. We've got... Uh, uh, Chronicle columnist, C.W. Nevis. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, we have Erica Lutz, who just put a new book out I called The Erica. Edge of Maybe. Yeah, yeah. she's fantastic. Um, who else do we have? I know I'm forgetting. Um, oh, 
man, I, I'm forgetting a couple other people. Well, that's but. okay. I'll, when I when I when this goes uh, when this um, episode goes up, which will be soon, uh, I'll be sure to you know make sure to mention who's going to be on awesome. the show. I appreciate and, that. Uh, I'll plug the website again uh, so people can check that out. And this will definitely drop before that show, so that'll be good. And uh, even if you're hearing this after. The 17th, there is, again, the shows are pretty much monthly in San Francisco, and uh, you ventured into Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we took it down to, and I should say that Bruce Packman has been uh, fantastic. He is, is, is our host, and he's uh, uh, an accomplished solo performer in his own right, and he's been you, just amazing with, with getting press and publicity. Uh, so I couldn't do it without Bruce. So big shout-out to Bruce. Shout-out to Bruce, who's a nice guy. I uh, talked to him a couple times in regards to your show, and he really uh, is very helpful. So. Yes, yeah, just right. super, super, super guy. I'm, I'm lucky to have, uh, to, to have hooked up with him. Um, but, yeah, we took it down there, and largely through his connections to the Comedy Central um, live theater space. Okay. And that was, you know, really exciting. Uh, and, and, you know, we worked really hard to get people in there. Uh, because, you know, the weird thing is, is Comedy Central told us outright, we're not going to do anything for you. <laughs> we're, we're giving you the space and we're putting your name. It just on... seems so Hollywood, doesn't it? it? it we're absolutely, not going to yeah, do anything it, to help you. In fact, we're going to do things to stand in your way. They, I mean, they didn't say that. They said, <laughs> you know, look, we're super excited, but, you know, you've got the publicity, right? You know, which is right. basically saying we're not doing anything for you. <laughs> right. You know, so uh, and and that that was frustrating because. We had, I think it was, it ended up being like 70 people who were firm commitments, didn't show up that night. Uh, so we had a smaller audience than we wanted. Greg, who we had on the show through no fault of his own, that afternoon called me and, and had a bow out because he had a, a serious health issue. He's okay, but he had to address it. And, and you know, you can't say, you know, damn it, I know you can get, get drugs. Get down here, get the iron yes. lung and get down here. Come on, man. <laughs> Uh, so it, it just, I mean, and we had a theme that night, and the theme was shows gone wrong. So that seemed <laughs> worked out perfectly. <laughs> there was a demonstration of yeah. it. We had Moshe Kasher on, okay. uh, who, who's fantastic and definitely a rising star. But still, it yeah, it didn't it didn't gel, and I'm not sure the audience understood what we were going for. Um, you know, but it's hard to say. I mean, LA is a different animal. Audiences down there seem so jaded. Yeah. So, you know, it was okay. Um, but it was an interesting feeling because I'm, I, I told what I think is my best story and the story I love to do the most, which is me hitting the cow. Oh yes, you know, on the road. Yeah, great and, story. You know, the crowd is just—they're not—they're not there. Like other crowds have been there for yeah. me, and I had this interesting moment where, you know, you're in your head sometimes as a performer. So, like, you do it for years and years and years. You can be doing your laundry list or thinking about what movies you're going to rent or whatever, and meanwhile still appear completely present, you know, and, and giving it. And sometimes if things go wrong, you can go into the back mm. of your head and you're like, oh, my God, this is going wrong, and then it impacts your performance. But instead I was in the back of my head and I'm like, you know, this is a really good story, and I think this show is really good, and I believe in it. So... I'm going to continue to present this like it's very important to me, which it is, and that's okay. You know, whatever's happening is going to happen. So I felt like that was a win, a personal win. Yeah. You know, that was like, all right, I, I could have gone down there and gotten flustered and it didn't go my way. Um, you know, I guess there was some low-level Comedy Central executive there that night who didn't talk to us yeah. afterwards. And they make a, a DVD that they hand you at the end. 
the guy who came up to Bruce and I to hand us the DVD, the look on his face and the way he handed it was like, I just scraped this off the bottom of my shoe. Here you go. You know, it just... Ugh. Now, you think of, of spaces... I mean, it was great you were able to get that space when you are down there, but do you think there may have been an expectation that's Comedy Central space that this, Absolutely. Well, this is going to be Absolutely. balls to the wall? Hilarious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and I think that, you know, we've, we've had to learn this lesson over and over and over again, Bruce and I. And that's why from now on we only do it in a theater and we make sure that everybody understands the concept. This is a story telling show, uh, which means there's going to be dramatic moments and there is going to be humor, but it's not a stand-up show. Uh, And it's been interesting. I mean, we've had stand-ups on and we really have to work with them for them to get that, but there's still that first five minutes. You can see it in their eyes. Like, I'm not getting a laugh. Oh my God, what's happening? And then you can actually watch them relax and get it. Like, oh, I don't have to get a laugh. I just have to tell the story. And it's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so you've carved out this interesting PSI niche for yourself, um, but in sort of the uh, trajectory of a comedy career, uh, where did you start to go, well, I, I really should be making a move to get on TV, or I should maybe I should do movies, or make a <laughs> move to L.A. Yeah. and showcase yeah. those clubs. So I just kind of chart out, you know, how did, where did you make the various decisions uh, to maybe not do that or maybe you tried and it just was frustrating or? man man now you're yeah wow <laughs> i feel like my career i mean it, i i've spent a lot of years trying to become less or i, I don't want to beat myself up as much as i used to but i mm-hmm. feel like i made a lot of decisions uh that were the complete opposite of what i should have mm-hmm. done you know and some of them were on personal reasons some of them were professional uh, I wish I would have gone to L.A. when I was younger. I wish that when I did finally go down there, I wish I would have stayed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think any comic, if they're honest, has a lot of career regrets. And where I am now, I mean, you know, I've been lucky to become a big fish in a small pond. And, uh, you know, Punchline and Cops has, has taken care of me. But I also know that at this point in my career, if I'm going to have a bigger career, it's completely up to me. I have to create the right. package. I'm going to have to present it. I'm going to have to bring it to them. Uh, but that doesn't mean, you know, I, I haven't given up on, uh, I, I'm trying to get on Craig Ferguson, and they've uh-huh. greenlit me, so they say. And, um, you know, there's a lot of waiting. There's a yeah. lot of, you know, they, they, okay, we like this set. You know, we got through that. That was a year. <laughs> you know, and now they're, I guess they're redoing the studio, so uh-huh. uh, I won't get any word till after August. Uh, you know, tried to get on America's Got Talent. Uh, you know, if, if if Last Comic Standing ever comes around, I will do that. But I also know that the people that have gone to L.A. and have pursued those things, there is a personal price to pay. Sure. I mean, when people say L.A. changes you, it, it changes people. And I don't, you know, not, they're not homeless and drug addicts, but the people that, like, oh, they, they, they do see... Uh, oh, I can get some dollar signs and recognition. And that messes with people, especially yeah. if you're young and you're surrounded by yeah, it, yeah. you know. Uh, so in that regard, I'm I'm glad that I didn't stay down there. You know, I'm, I feel like as a person, I'm in a better place. You know, there's been some professional trade-offs. Sure. But emotionally, I feel like, you know, I think I made the right choice for me. I think I did, you know. I would like more, sure, like anybody. Uh, but for the time being, I'm like, all right, 
PSI is happening. I'm working more than yeah. a lot of comics are who live in the city. So, well, you uh, you have a you know having had a perspective on you now that you know stretches probably twelve or more years. It's interesting just to have seen you gone from somebody who, you know, uh, would have you know probably done anything to get on TV at a certain point. Yeah. In your fledgling career, to now you have this sort of self possessed, um, sort of almost aura where you can't really be flustered by those things. And it's like, well, okay, if I didn't get that, that's fine. I'm still doing my thing. I'm calling the shots. Yeah. And I'll do it when the time is right or I won't do it. It's not, it's not as important as it is that you, at least it seems to me that you stay true to kind of who you decided you are. Yeah. And that's still a work in progress too. I mean, um, you know, getting in at the punchline was a really big thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And that led to, you know, most of the local successes. And, I mean, I, I got on Comedy Central off of one set here mm. on a Sunday night. You know, they saw me, um, and they called me, like, three months later, and I didn't believe it was actually <laughs> them. I mean, it seems like a cliche, like some sitcom moment, but I hung up on the guy. That's funny. And I thought it was my friend Dan Rothenberg. I think you remember yeah, Dan. Remember yeah, Dan, yeah. And I'm like, Dan, come on, don't, don't fucking do this, dude. Can I say that? Yeah, it's a yes. podcast. You know, and I hung up, and the guy called me back, like, "No, Joe, really? We saw you Sunday night three months ago. Remember the?" I'm like, "Oh, okay." You know, stuff like that comes along, and you know that that was a great lesson for me because I remember the night that I went up on stage, and it was like, you know, if I get this, awesome. If I don't get it, I'm okay. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because uh, at a certain point in my career, when I wanted to, I, I mean, I'm still, I'm a writer, and I've wanted to write, and I've sold writing and things like that. But at one point, I said, "Oh, I'm going to be on a staff, and I'll be in L.A." And it, that, I was on a game show writing staff, but it wasn't the same kind of thing. Yeah, that sort of thing. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I went to pitch a show to Comedy Central, and the head of Comedy Central, he may still be the head of Comedy Central, at least the guy I pitched to. Anyway, I don't know if he was the head, but he was the guy I was pitching to. Was a guy that I did a couple of TV commercials with when I lived in Seattle running oh, the wow. comedy club. And he was my silent dude next to me. I was the guy with the lines. And oh, he was wow. the silent guy next to me. Totally camera shy. Uh, and so he was the guy we were pitching the show to. It was me and a couple of producer friends of mine, another comic. We're in nice. there pitching the show. And it's him and two other executives. And they ended up passing on the show. So I found those commercials and I had them burned to DVDs and I sent <laughs> them to everyone I knew at Comedy Central. Ah, what a great payback. <laughs> this is your boss, everybody. <laughs> yes. that's, that's way better than a horse head, really. Oh, man. We will be back with more Joe Klosik in just a moment. Let's take a quick break out and uh, give a listen to Karen Kilgariff from her album Behind You. Uh, played uh, one song from this and... Uh, Uh, It's a five-song album. You can get it on bandcamp.com. And here's uh, Karen Kilgariff with I Want to Win. I want to win. I just want to win. I want to crush you till your windpipe caves in. And I want to be the prettiest person at Earth Cafe. And I hate Tina Fey. I know that's taboo, so if you don't like it, you can fuck you. Cause I want her money, her glory, her baby, her dog, and her job. And if one more person tells me I have to watch Modern Family, I am going to buy that gun I am I on. 
once loved a boy, he did not love me. In retrospect, I would have to agree. But you can still bet the next one I met, I put through the ringer. Yeah, cause that is the world, that's how it works. Every heart's broken and everyone's jerks. And money don't change it, drugs can't erase it, you can't plug it away. And if one more person asked me what I have been working on lately, I don't think I'll ever stop crying. This portion of Succotash is brought to you by Henderson's, innovation in pantaloons and trousers since 1896. Almost 80 years ago, when Grandpa Al Henderson was struggling to raise a family during the Great Depression, he did what any unemployed family man would do. He shoplifted food. But he did it the right way and never got caught because he used his patented Henderson's kleptomatic trousers made with pride in the USA with not four, not five, but 11 expandable pockets that drape and shape naturally while stylishly concealing fresh fruits and vegetables, eggs, even live poultry, and feed a family of five while never once alerting market vendors or law enforcement officials. Well, as they say, everything old is new again. And now, Henderson's is proud to offer Kleptomatic Plus, microchip equipped to neutralize barcode scanners, exit alarms, and other loss control detectors, so you can walk through any door with confidence. That's Henderson's Kleptomatic and Kleptomatic Plus trousers, helping you provide with confidence in every stride. And now, back to more of Succotash. Let's talk uh, sort of nuts and bolts about how your comedy has evolved. I mean, when you started out, you were doing this sort of, the you know, your, the one bit you had was the story about your girlfriend <laughs> dumping you. And then what has your material sort of, what's been the, the evolution of it? Oh, man. These are good questions. <laughs> um, you know, I think like anybody, when you're new, you just want the audience to laugh. Sure. And that's setting the bar low in terms of quality. And like a lot of comics, I think I was, I was pretty dirty. I was pretty uh, general. I just wanted them to laugh. And then, um, you know, you, you, and I'm generalizing, but this is my story as well. Yeah. I, about three, four years in, I kind of hit this wall, like... Well, I know how to make them laugh, but I'm not really saying anything I want to say. Mm. So how do I say what I want to say and get them to laugh? And then that was another, you know, two, three years of, of okay, well, this is what's important to me, and how do I get that across? Uh, then, you know, you learn how to edit. And then the other thing that was going on at the same time, I was booking myself to go out on the road, and, uh, you know, 30-minute sets, and I didn't have 30 minutes. You know, I had maybe 15 on a good night. If they laughed yeah. long, I had 15. So I had to cover that by talking to the crowd. And one of the, the, the skill, I mean, the skill that really developed for me was, was talking to the crowd. And that was good and bad. Well, it was good enough that that was, I'm sure, what led Tom Sawyer to believe, here's a guy who can do improv, even though you had no training. He hated it, though. No, he, hate, he hated crowd work. Yes. But the crowd work is what told him, here's a guy who knows how to improvise, even though you had none of the underpinnings of what an improviser learns. No, no. 
I, I think Tom just wanted to abuse me. <laughs> I, I, he just he wanted to psychologically abuse me. Like, all right, you're in. Now you're going to pay a price. How how early on? I and, and to be honest, other than the storytelling stuff, I haven't seen you do a set in a club in a while. I'm assuming you still do this because it always cracks me up that you came up with this in convention or invention where you address the crowd as an individual. <laughs> and you, you would call them crowd or audience or these things. When did you start doing that? I, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I can't be the first comic who's done that. No, but it you just, do it very consistently. Yeah, and there's, yeah. And there's an attitude. To, I've seen other people do it, but the way you do it, it really is as if they are one entity. It, it, it just, I mean, audiences have a personality, you know? I mean, sure, it's made up of individuals, but it's it's interesting how the joke that you always do that always works, like one night for some reason won't work, or, or you know, they go, ooh, it's something, like, well, that's just the setup, like, and that's never happened before, and I think it, it came out of that, you know, like, I'm just going to address you like a stray dog, you know, like, you've just come up to me and you're... <laughs> You're confused by what command I'm giving you or, you know, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, and, yeah, I just – but you're – a couple of people have commented on that to me before. Like, do you, do you think that that's rude to them? Like, no, I think they – I think they – you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a smart ass. I think I, just the opposite. I believe it bonds them in the sort of us-and-you relationship that a crowd has with an audience. <laughs> yeah. Because they come in, they do come in perceiving themselves as individuals. But the truth is they are a collective entity. Yeah. So you pick, out, pick, out the, you know, pick one out or something and talk to them. But they are collective, and they respond collectively. They do. They do. Uh, so I think, I think that actually does help them to sort of feel that part of the relationship. Yeah, that's it, just it, my theory. No, I, I think that's, that's probably true. I mean, I, I, I think it, it definitely provides a glue, and then they, they realize it, yeah. that, oh, this is how he sees us, and then they do start to respond in that way even more. So it does. Yeah, it is interesting. You're right about that. It does cement that relationship. Um, yeah. But, it, it, you know, becoming good at crowd work, it... It was. It's a great skill to have. Period. You teach classes in it. I, I occasionally will do a riffing class in yeah. it. Um, it's it's a it's a perfect. I, I had this experience. I think this will sum up what I'm stuttering around saying. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was working up in the Sacramento Punchline, uh-huh. and after the week was done, the comic I was working with comes up to me and he goes, "You know, I just want to say that you have perfected all the skills necessary to give an amazing live show." I'm like, wow, that's that's really cool. Thanks, man. But hmm. you have perfected almost none of the skills necessary to get on TV. Interesting. And I'm like, wow, that's wow. that's that's you know, wow. he giveth and he taketh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But he was right. You know, I mean, when you hear truth, it's like, oh, you're right. And yeah. and that it, it made me realize that I had spent too much time indulging in the crowd work because it can get easy. I mean, anything that you become good at can become easy. Sure. And I wasn't writing. I wasn't developing material, and you can't do crowd work on TV. So, you know, then I went back to, well, what is important to me? What do I want to talk about? And unfortunately, it was all topics like, you know, religion, race in America, <laughs> politics. No hot button topics. No, yeah, you know, the stuff that TV just eats up. <laughs> um, and, and that, you know, that was frustrating, too, because I'm like, man, I really like to talk about this. And I don't, you know, I'm not saying the smartest guy in the world around those topics or I have the most interesting take, but I think if you present it with passion and you have punchlines, people are going to be there for you on it. So, you know, 
9-11? What, because let's interject that. That's, that's always a... It's always a laugh Always getter. a laugh getter, yeah. <laughs> 9-11 really changed me as a comic. It really, really... Yeah, and not... It wasn't... I didn't see it happening at first, but I became really uh, a social commentary guy mm. um, because nobody quite knew how to handle it. I remember when it happened. I remember going down to Cobb's the day after, and nobody knew... You know, do we talk about it? How do we not talk about it? Yeah. And slowly comics were getting on stage and they were bringing it up. And the audience laughed in a way I don't ever remember seeing an audience laugh since or after. Mm. Or before, I should say. It was incredibly cathartic. They were yes. grateful. Yeah, they really needed the release. Yeah, that you were... And nobody was mocking it. Nobody was, you know, doing off-color jokes. Those came later. You know, but, <laughs> of course. You know, it, it, was, it was a really interesting thing, and that really left an impression on me. Uh, because up until 9-11, any comic that was doing social commentary, you could get on stage and just go, fucking America. And that was a round of applause. That's right. You know, and you could go after the government, and it didn't matter who was the president, who, you know, what the yeah. shape of Congress was. And then 9-11 happened, and suddenly you couldn't do that. You know, but, but there, thanks to Bush... There was a lot you could say about a reaction, except some crowds, they didn't want to hear that. You know, it was a really interesting time. Uh, so I spent, you know, four or five years after 9-11 um, be, being unbookable. Wow, okay. <laughs> uh, there was a couple of clubs I worked that said, you know, we're not going to have you back. Really? Yeah. You know, some interesting experiences that happened out on the road. Wow. You know, one night a woman come up, came up to me. Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was doing, you know, uh, what I thought was the peak of my social commentary post 9-11, uh, you know, kind of comedy, and she comes up to me, she goes, you know, my husband is serving right now in Afghanistan, and I just came out tonight to get away from that and feel better, and you brought it all back, and that, that hurt, yeah. you know, I'm like, that is not my intention to make you feel bad and to make you think about your husband in a war-torn place, you know? So that made me think a little bit, and, and part of it was like, well, I still believe in what I'm saying, but I can't just be saying this. So I gotta, I've got to dig deeper and, and look at, you know, what can I talk about, uh, you know? And, and I think like any comic, you always come back to you, you know, when you talk mm -hmm. about... Well, here's how I see things, and here's, you know, I'm growing, and I'm trying to figure out how not to be this guy, and yeah. relationships, you know, I, I, I don't want to be the comic that says dating is weird, and I don't want to be the comic that makes fun of comics that says dating is weird, but dating is weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the truth of the matter is, <clears throat> if, you, if you use yourself as your sort of material slate to draw from, Absolutely. or draw on... There is going to be a percentage of the people in the audience who share your perspective, who go, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. There's going to be people that know people like you and go, oh, yeah. that's like Bob. And there's people who are going to be totally alien to that and go, that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. I don't know who said it, but I think it's such a great comic quote. The job of a comedian is to get the audience to see the world through their eyes. Mm. And I think that that's, that's our very, job. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's our mission. So no matter what I'm talking about, I hope... That. I think it was Carrot Top, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I believe you're correct. The top, as we call them in the business. C-top. C-top. Uh, but, it, I mean, that's, yeah, you want things to be personal, but at the same time universal. I think the guy that typifies that right now is Louis C.K. Sure, yeah. You know, he's good, so personal yeah. 
in what he talks about, but yet he gets these laughs where you know that laugh is generated out of, oh, I know that feeling. Yeah. Okay, so let's just go back because you, um, you you fell into doing stand-up. It wasn't a career choice at the time. You just, friends said, hey, try this out. Were you cued into comedy at all as a kid? Were there comics you liked? You know, I, I think back about that because I have a lot of vivid memories. I just watched the Carson documentary. Oh, okay. Did you see that yet? I haven't seen it yet. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I, I, Carson is such an interesting figure in American pop culture, period. Oh, yeah. Partly because he was so private. And the guy who did the documentary, the backstory is pretty amazing, too. He, he sent a letter every year, and Carson continually turned him down. Then one day after the show's over, Carson calls him and just says, I've said everything I need to say. You know, I appreciate your interest, but I'm done. So he made this documentary basically about Carson by everyone talking about him. But there's... It, it's... He's slippery, and I think that's part yeah. of why he remains this mythic figure mm-hmm. in American pop culture. We just don't know who he is. But I remember sneaking out of my bedroom, you know, as, as a little kid, and I'd stand in the hallway outside my parents' uh, room, and I could watch Carson over my dad's shoulder. And I remember when my dad laughed, he literally slapped his knee. <laughs> you know, so he would literally do that, and he would just be laughing so much and I thought it was amazing that anybody could produce that response in my father and so I'd watch the comics and I didn't get any of the jokes but I do remember thinking that's really cool I wish I could do that Hmm. and then I filed that away you know uh, the the 80s came you know 1982 I was 13 you know uh, that was probably like when the boom exploded sure Yeah. yeah and you know, I, I would watch, my brother and I would watch Evening at the Improv, you know, we, we would, you know, but there was no, yeah, there was no comic that I really thought, oh. So you weren't, like, influenced by seeing George Carlin or listening no, to his albums? No, or yeah, any, any of those, yeah. Those influences, a lot of comics that are probably maybe 10 years older than you would, would point at? I, I got uh, all that education as I was doing it, okay. much like the improv. Sure. You know that, that that happened later. You yeah. know, it was like this boot camp, because you know the the comics that were just like a year older than I was, you know, doing it a year longer. They would say that like, "Hey, did you ever listen to any Carlin?" Like, no. And they were like, "What is wrong with you?" <laughs> you know. So I would go home and consume all of Carlin yeah. in like a two day thing, and like, oh, I get it. You know. And uh, Bill Hicks was another big one. People were like, yeah. "Well, you got to listen to Bill Hicks," and, and then I would consume him and. Uh, but yeah, I would also watch like the local guys. Sunday nights down here were amazing. Yeah. I, I remember the first time I saw Johnny Steele. You know, sure. it was on a Sunday night, and uh, he he was the guy I wanted to be. Yeah, we'll have to get Johnny on on this show. He wants to come on. So he was. I mean, Johnny, and still to this day, like no matter how good the show is, how much energy, how incredible it's been, Johnny always was that guy that would go up and then find another level that you didn't know was there, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, yes. and I can, you know, Sunday nights were mythic back in the day down here. You'd see incredible people and you would just think, oh, who's got to follow this? And then Johnny would go up there and you're like, wow, yeah. okay, that's what you want to be yeah. doing. Yeah. Um, let's uh, talk a bit about podcasts. <laughs> uh, Podcast. Here's where I get in trouble. Oh, uh, no, no, it's fine. Uh uh, because uh, you had recently posted on, f- I think it was Facebook, Facebook. Uh, something about 
uh, I forget exactly the way you phrased it. I wish I'd looked it up before we sat down. But it was something about, you were you, you threw a question out there. Uh, and it was, are there any, I think it was, are there any funny, are there any local podcasts that are funny? And you were really kind of pointing your finger at kind of San Francisco Bay Area centric podcast because there's a lot of podcasts that are done by you know big national comics but they live in new york and, yeah and, and who are the local ones yeah or who are the local yeah. ones? um so what is your experience in terms of sampling the local fare wow and you don't have to name shows or sure no, no, uh, no unless I mean, things come to mind because i don't i don't care about talking about anybody well you know sal and, and angelo probably you know they're they're pretty consistent and offbeat yeah you know, i played i played a couple clips from that yeah year. And, and, you know, when it comes to a comics podcast, I think, look, you don't have to be funny all the time because, you're, you know, it's two guys in a room. Right. You know, that's going to be hard to maintain. Uh, but you have to be interesting, period. Like, it's a, it's a different dynamic. And I think comics don't understand that because when you're on stage, you have to be funny. You don't necessarily have to be interesting. You just have to be funny. Right. You right. know, and that could be, you know, farts and dick jokes. Yeah. It's not, you know, that interesting to... A lot of people, but, it, you know, it's going to make people laugh. But it's completely opposite as a podcast. So you get people trying to be funny, and they're failing at it, yeah. and there's no feedback because they're alone in a room. And then when it comes to being interesting, man, a lot of the podcasts, uh, they're done by people who are either at best open mic level, or they've been on the periphery. Did I even say that right? Per- periphery. Periphery. Uh, <laughs> of comedy in the bay area for a very long time so they're outsiders looking in commenting on it and i just feel like i don't know if you've earned the right to comment because you're not really in it interesting yeah there, i mean there's a phenomenon and my listeners that, that have listened for a while know that i'm always kind of on about this beef and this goes beyond the bay area con- uh, podcast and they're not comedians a lot of them they're people that are they're four guys sitting around in the living room uh, or you know, two guys in a car, or whatever it is, and they're uh, laughing and scratching, and they, you know, they they think they're hilarious. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're not. They tend to not be interesting. I think that's a, a great way to sum it up. Um, and some of them are very interesting. And I've heard, you know, because I I have to listen to a lot of podcasts to get samples for this show. Yeah. To get the clips, and I, I have heard guys that I will not play a clip from, and then if I wait ten shows, it's amazing that they actually do start to listen to themselves. Yeah. They start. They do listen to other podcasts. They go, "We're not doing something right." Well, feedback can be brutal. I mean, if you have oh, any yeah. anywhere where people can leave public comments, I mean. People yeah. love that. Yeah. You know? So here's my open invitation to the listeners who are <laughs> podcasters, because I talked to you about doing this. And my first idea was I was just going to get some clips together and have you come back on the show. We would listen to them together, and you would give you know your two cents, and I would talk about them from my perspective. Uh, but I'll do this. is it, you've, you've heard Joe's perspective on, on the local San Francisco podcast. If you are a podcaster, comedy <laughs> podcaster, and want to uh, uh, be specifically grilled by uh, by Joe and me, uh, you can send a clip to Mark M A R C at SuckAssShow dot com and let us know that you are willing to go uh, under the microscope. And uh, That's a good most, way of putting it, yeah, because most of my most of my shows, I'm happy to play clips. I don't really try to badmouth people that that haven't gotten their show together yet. I will badmouth quality because if you can't be funny and you can't be interesting, at least make it sound good. Yes, yeah. there's nothing worse than trying to listen to something and that's bad. 
Yeah. Um, but I, I have kind of, you know, pulled my punches when it comes to talking about quality of shows in terms of their content. But uh, I, I invite them to contribute a clip. Uh, and by the way, if you don't contribute a clip, I'm going to pick clips anyway. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you have your chance. Submit your best clips now. And D Head Factor in Australia, you know, you know who you are. <laughs> Those guys are great. They're uh, I like making fun of them. Um, anyway, so uh, go ahead and send that along, and I will have Joe back on a future episode of Succotash, and we will have at you. I will be happy to play bad cop. Excellent, excellent. Um, so what uh, what what plans do you have? I mean, you've got uh, um, PSI underway. You've, it's been going for how many how many more? two years? Two years. Now. Yeah, we just uh, April was our second anniversary. So, are there plans to make that grander, or will there be video versions? Will there be be big theater productions of it? Things like that. Hopefully, all of the above. We've. Uh, you know, I wish I could say that from the very beginning we recorded, but almost from the very beginning. We've, uh, we have audio and video recording of most of the shows. We've got the Proop show oh, great. You know, recorded. Um, the plan is to release that as a podcast, so I will <laughs> put myself up under there the microscope. under the microscope. <laughs> um, I think what we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure we had enough content yeah. so that we could release it you know, over time. Um, we, Mark Marin did one of our shows. So, you know, we've got a couple big names that we hope will draw people and they'll get the concept from that and then they'll explore some of the other content there. Um, well, one, one good thing for what you're doing is a lot of comics are loath to kind of sign off on their material for a recording yeah. because they go, well, I'm not going to burn my material for a guy who just wants to put out a CD from his co- the club or something. Yeah. But you're you're really kind of cherry-picking material that they're not likely to do many other places. No, but you know what's interesting is uh, almost every comic we've had on, after they they do it and they see how it's received, they want to come back immediately with another story, and they begin adapting that material to stand-up. Oh, interesting. Sort of like Louis C.K. does with his material for his TV show. I saw him when he was out here... um, what, like six months ago, and he did a week at the punchline to hone what was going to become a special, okay. the, the Beacon Theater special. Yeah. And uh, I came down and watched him, and it's now my obsession to get Louis C.K. on ah. PSI because he's doing storytelling. Right. He, I think he's transcended traditional stand-up uh, because it was so thoughtful and so introspective, warts and all. Yeah. You know, he's just laying out these incredible stories it just he's got those punchlines, you know, all through the story that lead up to this magnificent reveal. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you know, I'm I'm doing the same thing. I'm trying to bring more storytelling into my stand up. Uh, and I find that it only works in that direction. If I try to bring some of the stand up into the storytelling, it comes off plastic age. Yeah, and the audience is just like, Oh, that's that's it's not, not working. Yeah, it's We're not, not working. It. But you know, the the big goal is I would love to see PSI as uh, a Showtime HBO special. Um, you know, I think Comedy Central, they skew to a very young demographic, so I don't think they would go for what we're going for anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, hopefully we're working right now putting together uh, uh, basically a demo mm-hmm. uh, that we can get into the hands of some people. Locally, we'd like to sit down t- with KQED, you know, and see if, sure. if they would be interested uh, but yeah, you know the, the the goal is yeah. I I want it to be bigger. 
grander. Um, I can see it going on the road. What about the route of going Louis C.K. and producing it for your, you know, yourself and then put it out there for five bucks or whatever? I mean, obviously he's going to have a much bigger yeah. impact, but depending who you have featured on the show. Absolutely. You know, I, it, it, it's all about getting a big name. You know, um, I wish I was that big name, but hopefully I will become that big name through this. Right. Uh, and yeah, we thought about that, but I think if we release it for people to buy as a product right now, I think it's too soon. I think we got to build a awareness. fan base. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, build awareness. Here's here's what we're about. Um, we and I love the idea of a live show. I want people to come see it. Yeah. And see it, experience it, because part of why I think PSI works is uh, people, you know, social media is the biggest oxymoron there is. You know, it's we've all become very antisocial. You know, I'm, hmm. if you look at people sitting in a cafe, they're all looking down at their phones, you know, having a conversation with somebody at another cafe, sitting at a table with three other people they're ignoring. <laughs> you know, it's it's become this weird thing in storytelling is very primitive. It's very, it was the first entertainment. Right. So I like the idea of, okay, look, here we are. You're not looking at a screen. You're not plugging, you know, it's, it's just you're alone out there and you guys are observing a human being telling a story. So, you know, I want to preserve that aspect as, as much as possible, which is probably a detriment to making money. But all the other stuff that I think that we would do, podcast, uh, you know, show on HBO, Really, I just want to get use that to get people to come see it live, which is what Louis C.K. has said about his show Louis. Right. I just want to use that to get people to come see me. <laughs> right. So I feel like, all right, if I'm going to steal a premise to success, yeah. that's a pretty good guy to emulate right now. I think that sounds about right. Very cool. Um, there's a couple of podcasts you may or may not be aware of uh, as you're thinking about doing a podcast on storytelling. The Moth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they're they're great. Uh, I've listened to them a lot. They really specialize, though, in in more of a short form. Yeah. Which I don't. You know, I, I'm some stories need to be ten minutes. Right. But some stories, if well, well told, need to be thirty. True. I mean, the night that you came, yeah. Greg told an hour long yeah. story, one coherent story, and it was incredible. Yeah. No, and uh, th- that's I think where your podcast is going to you know be the be the difference. And you believe me with the 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 uh, the shitload, if I may use that technical <laughs> you term, may, of you podcasts may. out there, you need something that's going to break through. I mean, it's just, there's so many, Yeah. uh, literally just in comedy podcasts alone, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of podcasts. So it's how do you break through and having a unique product is the way to do it. Well, Joe, thanks for talking to us. And I look forward to having you come back on the, uh, I don't know exactly how to title the show yet in terms of (laughs) what we'll be doing to people's uh, podcasts, but we'll call it the review show. The review show. That's nice. That that uh, sounds... My guest has been Joe Klosik, and uh, you can see him. Uh, again, the, the upcoming date in June is the 17th. Correct. At the Stageworks Theater. Correct. Uh, the information will be uh, uh, on our website, Succotash Show website, so you can check that out. And, uh, Joe, thanks very much, and we look forward to uh, having you back again. Thank you, sir. Thank you. We're shaking hands. <laughs> Audibly. <laughs> I want to thank Joe Klosik again for making himself available. Don't forget to check out previously secret information if you are in San Francisco on Sunday, June 17th at the Stage Works Theater. That's at 446 Valencia Street. And you can get advanced tickets through uh, Eventbrite. On the show will be Jamie DeWolf, 
Also C.W. Nevius, Erica Lutz, and Joe Klosik himself. So uh, be sure to check out that show, Previously Secret Information. Let's wrap things up with our burst o durst with comedian Will Durst. Hey, guys. Will Durst here to say forget the almanac and the calendar and the astrology charts or whatever the weatherman and the neighbor over the fence with the hair growing out of a mole on his nose shaped like the state of Delaware told you. The true wormhole opening to summer is not the solstice on the 21st day of June. It's the fourth Monday of May, Memorial Day. Officially carved out as a peaceful respite to lay a wreath at the tomb of all the young men and women who paid the ultimate sacrifice for the security of our nation, not to mention the multitude of valiant drivers tragically lost in automobile races. Unofficially, it's a time for the whole of America to stop and catch our breath. Summer? Already? How the hell did that happen? Wasn't it just the other day we were taking down Christmas lights? Of course, some of us still have our Christmas lights up, and what's wrong with that? Most importantly, Memorial Day marks the beginning of the flesh-charring season. Our own at the beach, eating al fresco for the first time all year, and that of many various sluggish mammals who gave their lives so we could raise our cholesterol levels to heights where Sherpas fear to tread on a freshly scrubbed Weber. It means fireworks and lemonade and tires swinging on ropes over rivers and roasted marshmallows and ice cream on sticks that melt down your arm all the way to the elbow. And air conditioning. Some people claim to even find camping relaxing. Good for you. To me, the outdoors is where the car is. Roughing it means basic cable without Turner Classic Movies. You say wilderness, I think spotty cell phone coverage. Our frenzied season of leisure is too shortly destined to evaporate on Labor Day. So hurry on out there and have yourself one terrific summer full of languid days and soft night breezes. May you frolic and cavort and gamble and caper in a madcap series of wacky, zany antics that you remember fondly always. And just try to keep the sand off your hot dog, if you know what I mean. For Succotash, the podcast of comedy podcasts, I'm Will Durst. That is going to do it for Epi 26 of Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast. Uh, as I said, it was a bit of a special episode with uh, just really the interview with Joe Klosik, a little bit of Karen Kilgariff, and a little snippet from uh, Will Durst, of course, in our burst of Durst. We will be back uh, very shortly with Epi 27, chock full podcast clip. If you want to get your clip in, send a three to five minute MP3 file to me, Mark Hershon. That's Mark, M-A-R-C, at SuccotashShow.com. You can also go to our website and uh, click through to uh, get yourself some merchandise. You can click through to uh, save our hard drive drive and uh, help us get some interviews that uh, have not been played yet off of a busted hard drive. And just check out uh, the blog there where I cover everything else that we're doing on the show. So until next time, please remember to pass the Succotash. You've been listening to Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants. And imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuccotashShow.com or at Suckatash Show on iTunes and even at Suckatash Show on your smartphone Stitcher app. Follow Suckatash on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Friend Suckatash on Facebook. 
Email us at marc at succotashshow.com or just pick up that phone and give Succotash a ring at 1-818-921-7212. Succotash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino at Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please... Pass the Succotash! That was fun.